Is Christianity all about political power, persuasion, and authority? Is Christianity just a religion, you know, a checklist of do's and don'ts? Or is it something a lot more than that? We're going to talk about that today and a lot more on BibleStudyPodcasts.org, starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again. You are listening to BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Today is Tuesday, September the 27th of 2011. As always, I'm your host, Toby Logsdon. God bless you guys, and thank you again for downloading this message and for joining in this study with us. We're blessed to have you here with us today. I hope that you guys are doing well on this fall afternoon. Uh, today being Tuesday, uh, yeah, we're, we're doing the podcast on Tuesday this week. Yes. Yesterday, I actually meant to do this lesson, uh, but we had a, a serious drop in barometric pressure yesterday. Last week, we were like uh, in the high 70s, which is really unusual for this time of year. Our lows overnight were like in the 60s, which is usually our high for this time of year in this area. So uh, all of a sudden on Sunday, fall blew in, and boy, did it blow in. It blew a tree over in our yard. Thankfully, nobody was hurt. Nothing was damaged. Um, the tree was dead, but it was about 60 feet tall. Uh, but thank you, Lord. Uh, you know, it, it didn't fall on anybody. It just fell into into open grass. But so uh, yesterday with the barometric pressure changing, uh, I was fighting off a migraine all day. And my, my thing with the podcast is uh, if I can't give my best, then I'll just do it on Tuesday. And when I'm fighting off a migraine, honestly, that's just one of those things that I worry about. Can I really give it my, my best today? Um, and so I thought, you know, I'll, I'll put it out on Tuesday. Honestly, the majority of our, uh, of our downloads for each lesson come, uh, comes years, if not just several months, uh, after I record them anyway. So uh, those of you who count on me faithfully giving you guys a lesson on, on Mondays, I apologize for that, but hopefully you understand. Well, we do have a lot to cover today. We're going to be covering Romans chapter 14, verses 16 to 18. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 14. We'll be covering verses 16 to 18. And uh, hopefully this will be a lesson that you enjoy. I know that this has been a long time coming. So uh, anyway, this is something that I've been looking forward to. Anyway, let's go ahead and get started with a quick word of prayer. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it does still speak to our lives today. And I pray, Lord, that this lesson today would teach us to live more harmoniously with each other and that we would serve you with more freedom than we did before. Teach us to draw near to you today, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here in the the 14th chapter of Romans, Paul's given us some pretty good insight on how to live out our faith in Jesus without trampling over the areas of personal conviction and persuasion that our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ might feel. You know, I've recently found myself wondering why Paul left this material for the 14th chapter, because not only is it extremely important that we grasp this lesson that he's giving us through the 14th chapter on unity among followers of Jesus, but it's also maybe the most difficult lesson for us to truly 
truly grasp and live out. I know without any doubt that if I were to give the average follower of Jesus a multiple choice test on the importance of unity among brothers and sisters in Jesus, almost everybody would pass it 100%, you know, flying colors. Almost everybody knows that Jesus, on the night before his death, prayed that we would be one, that we would have unity, just as he and the Father are one. That's from John chapter 17, verse 11. Almost everyone knows that Jesus told his disciples that the world would know that we're his followers because of our love for one another. That's from John chapter 13, verse 35. And yet, if we compared that knowledge with what actually gets lived out in the lives of a lot of Christ followers, we'd find that this knowledge is, for the most part, purely intellectual, academic knowledge. I mean, the knowledge of these principles exists in our minds, but it can be really difficult to find someone who has truly grasped this concept in their heart as well, and somebody who's really living this principle out in their life. Sadly, if we glance into the rearview mirror of history, back through the ages, we see several very significant splits among followers of Jesus. The most notable split was probably the separation that occurred in year uh, 1054 between the church in Rome and the church in Constantinople. This is referred to by church historians as the Great Schism. Uh, Some of the areas of dispute, some of the things that they were uh, fighting back and forth about, which caused this schism, included whether to use leavened or unleavened bread for communion. I mean, come on, that's silly. Just prior to the separation, delegates from the church in Rome visited the patriarch of Constantinople to demand that he concede that Rome was the true head and the mother of all churches. And when he refused to go along, he was excommunicated, shut off from all communication and viewed as uh, as a pagan, as an outsider. And of course, There were a few other issues that led up to this as well, but this was the final straw. The Eastern Church separated from the Western Church over issues that are far less important than the issue of unity among those who have put their trust for salvation in Jesus. Sad, isn't it? The problem, if you ask me, is that both sides believed that Christianity was really all about political power and authority. It had been that way for centuries. I mean, going back centuries. And so it's really no surprise that the Great Schism came about. Maybe the surprising part of it all is just that it took so long to happen. But this led to wars and invasions that resulted in plundering, senseless war, murder, all of those things. And they were all done, sadly, in the name of Jesus. Needless to say, this doesn't reflect the heart or the desires of Jesus, and it certainly doesn't fit with the lesson on unity that Paul's giving us here in the 14th chapter of Romans. Now, don't think for a second, by the way, that we don't see the same thing in play here in America today. I mean, we have Christians who believe that you can't be a follower of Jesus and a Democrat at the same time, and so thus they shun any brother or sister in Christ who aligns themselves with the Democratic Party. And we have Christians who are Democrats who don't believe that a person can be a Republican and simultaneously be a Christian. And so what we see is an increasing divide in our country uh, in churches between political parties. Paul's saying, cut it out. Nonsense. Being a follower of Jesus isn't about political power. Paul's in the middle of giving his audience directions and advice on finding the balance between liberty and legalism. In our previous lesson on Romans chapter 14, verses 14 and 15, we saw that 
one of the principles we need to be mindful of and live out is that nothing is clean or unclean in and of itself. We saw that if we hurt a fellow follower of Jesus because of areas of personal conviction, we're not walking according to love as we've been instructed to do. And we run the risk of stunting another person's walk and growth with the Lord. And Paul's going to expound a little further on this issue, and he continues giving advice about unity among Christ followers, writing here in Romans chapter 14, verse 16, Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. Well, let's stop there for just a, a moment to, to note the fact that this verse really just kind of serves as a bridge between the principle we just mentioned, that is making sure that we're walking according to love with other followers of Jesus, and the next principle on finding the balance between liberty and legalism. The principle in this verse, verse 16, that we need to understand is that it's not okay to label another person's convictions as being evil so long as they're trying to be obedient to God and they're trying to please God. We all have different ways of doing that, right? And thus, we need to learn that it's okay to agree to disagree on the externals, the things that we do outwardly. What really matters in living out our Christian faith, ultimately, is what's internal, that is, the heart of a person. There are genuine, legitimate followers of Jesus out there who think that it's evil, for example, to listen to music that has drums and electric guitars, and that those instruments, um, you know, those instruments are strictly forbidden in their churches. Yeah, really. Paul's saying, in essence, shame on them. If you're convicted that worshiping with electric guitars and drums is wrong for you, then don't do it. But don't label the practice of worshiping to music with electric guitars evil, because what really matters to God is whether they're trying to please him with their music. The fact is that if a person's trying to worship God, even with electric guitars or rap music, for that matter, if a person's really trying to worship God, the issue isn't the method of worship, but what drives the worship. If the heart is right, the worship is acceptable to God because the heart, the motivation that drives the worship music, is what God is really interested in. If we call something that's good and acceptable to God evil, really what we're doing is playing God. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. See, we need to be sure that we're not doing that because when a young Christian, a new Christian, is urged to forsake the areas of their personal conscience that the Holy Spirit is leading them in for the sake of fitting the mold of another person, another follower of Jesus, it's not the mold of Jesus that they'll be growing in. They'll be growing in the likeness of that other person. If a person is genuinely trying to please God in their conduct and isn't blatantly sinning, we don't have the freedom to call their practice evil. Well, let's continue with our text here in Romans. Why should we not call what is good for another follower of Jesus evil? Paul answers that in the next verse, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? The kingdom of God isn't about political power or earthly authority. It's not about separating ourselves over areas of personal conviction. Paul says that the kingdom of God isn't about eating and drinking, but that it's about three things that are totally unrelated to areas of personal conviction and persuasion. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
There are some people who would say uh, that I shouldn't enter an Asian restaurant, for example, when it has miniature temples and shrines set up around the entryway of the restaurant. Uh, if you've ever seen one of these, the practice usually is for the owners of the restaurant to offer tiny portions of food to their false pagan gods. Uh, should I not eat food in such a restaurant knowing that a portion of my meal has possibly been offered to a pagan god? Well, some people would say yes, and some people would say no. And Paul just told us that nothing is clean or unclean in and of itself, so this would be an area of personal conviction. But if eating in such a restaurant, if eating in a restaurant where there are all, there are all these pagan god shrines and things like that, if that would cause a brother or sister in Christ to stumble into sin for whatever reason, if it would lead them toward legalism or licentiousness, the answer is always no. But other than that, we're free to eat wherever we want because, as Paul tells us here, the kingdom of God isn't about eating and drinking. Now, here's the reasoning behind that. See, anyone can abstain from food in an Asian restaurant with shrines to false pagan gods set up. Anyone can do that. Jesus once told a parable about two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And both of these men went to the temple for the sake of praying. Jesus tells us what the Pharisee says first. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes off all that I get. That's from Luke chapter 18, verses 11 and 12, by the way. Now, let's take a close look at everything that the Pharisee has supposedly um, been praying about, that, that he's supposedly thanking God for. He isn't really praying to God at all, if we're being honest. He's more interested in exalting himself. He thanks God that he's superior to others, and he's going to prove it. As proof, he boasts before God of how he fasts twice a week and how faithfully he tithes. But where? is this man's heart. It's focused exclusively on himself. The things that he boasts about are meaningless. I mean, an atheist can fast twice a week. They can fast three times a week even if they want to. There's no command in scripture that we should or that we must fast, and thus there's no necessary correlation between fasting and faithfulness to God. I said necessary correlation. If it's an area of personal conviction, sure, we can be faithful to fast, but there's not a necessary correlation between fasting and faithfulness to God. It's an external behavior, as is the fact that this Pharisee tithes uh, regularly and faithfully. Again, that's something that even an atheist can do. The underlying issue here is the heart. The Pharisee does these things. Why? So that he can use his external actions to hide the darkness in his heart while exalting himself above God and above other people. Jesus continues in this parable saying, But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's from Luke chapter 18, verses 13 and 14. So here's a man, this tax collector, here's a man whose heart is totally broken. He's begging for God's forgiveness. He's begging for God's mercy because he knows that it's his only chance at redemption. He has nothing to boast in, and he realizes that he's totally undeserving of God's love and mercy. 
And it's because his heart is broken over his sin and he's humble that Jesus tells us that the tax collector goes home justified before God, forgiven, declared not guilty. The principle here is that doing this or doing that is nothing more than a religion of checklists, things that even an atheist can do or or not do. Maybe they can abstain from it. And that's not what following Jesus is all about. So what is it about? It's about these three things that Paul mentions, things that someone can't know a thing about unless they, they know about them through Christ. First of all, it's about righteousness, not our own idea of righteousness. Sure, everybody has their own idea of, well, you know, I want to be able to do this, and I want to be able to do that, and maybe I'll decide that I'll make my own rules, but I'm talking about a righteousness that's found in Christ alone, godly righteousness. Jesus instructed us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and you'll have all these other things given to you as well, from Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. What other things? Well, I'd say that peace and joy are a couple things that we can be assured are included in the list. What's funny about this list that Paul's given us is that out of the three, every person in the world wants the the latter two. They want peace and joy. But very, very few people are legitimately interested in the first, righteousness. The fact is that if we pursue peace and joy apart from Christ's righteousness, We'll never find it. We've got this attitude that we'll fake it till we make it, but the best that a godless humanity can do is find a counterfeit peace and joy. And I kind of liken this principle to the state of the American educational system. You know, there was a time when our children were doing very poorly in school uh, across the board, you know, overall. Uh, Average grade point averages were nearing an all-time low, and so instead of helping those students who were falling behind, our system decided that those students should just be allowed to fit lower standards. And so by lowering the standard, the average grade point average was raised. Problem fixed, right? Right. Yeah, not really. That's like someone who's had their, uh, you know, who's had their arms seriously broken saying, doctor, don't touch my arm. Just relieve my pain by giving me a, a few shots of morphine. You know, in both cases, only the symptoms are being treated without going to the root cause. And likewise, someone who seeks peace and joy without righteousness, apart from righteousness and without going to the root cause of peace and joy will always lack God's righteousness. They won't find peace and joy apart from it. God simply designed us in a way that we'd never know true peace or joy without first seeking, knowing, and having his righteousness as revealed in Jesus. Donald Gray Barnhouse writes in his commentary, quote, God's righteousness produces an infinite longing to grow in holiness, an ardent desire to know him better, an intense craving for truth in the inward parts, end quote. You see, righteousness is the doorway to finding the peace and joy that only God can provide, a peace and joy that are deeper than any peace or joy that humanity has ever known or experienced apart from God. Jesus is God's righteousness, and when we're united with Christ through faith and thus possess that righteousness, we also live with God's peace. That's the second characteristic that Paul lists here. We're not talking about just being at peace with God, which Paul referred to back in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, but we're talking about the peace of God, even when the life 
of a Christ follower appears chaotic on the surface, under the surface, there's a deep sense of joy and peace in the middle of life's most difficult circumstances. As difficult as it is to imagine, a submarine has no problem maintaining its course when the fiercest storms might be raging on the surface of the ocean. And similarly, when we find ourselves as followers of Jesus in trying circumstances, though we might feel like we couldn't experience more chaos or grief in our lives, deep within us is what we call the peace that passes all understanding. That's from Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. It's a peace that defies human reason, a peace that can't be experienced without first knowing the righteousness of Christ. The third thing that Paul lists is joy. Joy should be something that characterizes the life of every legitimate follower of Jesus, and it flows from the peace that we have within. That doesn't mean that a follower of Jesus never experiences grief or sorrow. To the contrary, you know, those are natural emotions, and even Jesus felt those emotions. As Jesus was grieving on the night prior to his crucifixion, he saw that his disciples were grieving too. They were grieving over the news that he was going to be leaving them. And so he said to them, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. That's from John chapter 16, verse 22. You see, if there's one thing that will stifle peace and joy every time, it's legalism, trying to force somebody else to exhibit or to abstain from the same external behaviors as someone other than Jesus, all for the wrong reasons. Now, Paul continues, writing Romans chapter 14, verse 18, For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. In other words, when a person serves God as a result of the righteousness, peace, and joy that they have, it's acceptable to God when that's the driving force behind their service, whether others personally serve the same way or not. Paul says something that's kind of tricky here, however. He says that when someone serves God this way, they're approved by, uh, by God. It's, it's acceptable to God, but it's approved by men. Well, how exactly does that work? I mean, didn't Jesus, uh, you know, wasn't he despised and rejected by men? And didn't he warn his disciples that if the world hates uh, hates him, and they do, then they'll, you know, they'll also hate his disciples because it hated him before it hated the disciples. And so, yeah, the world was going to hate them. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. If that's the case, how are we to understand what it means to be approved by men? Well, the reality is that there are some things that the world will always hate the follower of Jesus for. The cross, the necessity of trusting in Jesus' work on the cross on our behalf, the cross will always offend people because they'd rather earn grace with God. They'd rather earn their merit with God. The cross, however, signified the death of every humanly devised religious means of earning God's grace and was God's way of telling the world, you trust in my son. There is no other way to please me. The cross will always be offensive to the unbeliever, but we have to be careful that we, as followers of Jesus, reconcile to God through his work on the cross, that we aren't also offensive in our demeanor, that we don't add to the offensiveness of the cross. There's a world of difference. People admired Martin Luther King Jr., for example, for the same reasons that they admired Gandhi, but most people are deeply offended by the faith of Martin Luther King Jr., He was approved by men, even though his faith, for the most part, wasn't. So, no, the world won't always like or approve of us when they see that the only way to the peace and joy that they covet 
is through Christ's righteousness, but it's not us that they dislike when they see that. It's Jesus living in his righteousness through us that they hate. You know, I read the reviews that we get on iTunes periodically, and a few months back, we received a really nasty review uh, from a guy who I, I know who he is. He's an atheist. And he said some pretty insulting things to and about me in his review. Well, when my, my 10-year-old daughter saw that, uh, she decided that she would write a review also. You can go onto iTunes and read what my daughter put. Um, she stuck up for me by writing this review, telling the atheist that basically he's just a mean old man and didn't understand what I was doing. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but you know, I, I went into my daughter's room after I had read this, and I had to explain to her that it isn't me personally that this guy didn't like, but that it was Jesus, because an atheist hates Jesus. You know, as followers of Jesus, we're all called to serve him. When the godless world looks in on our lives, Paul's telling us that they should see a people whose lives are characterized by an outpouring of living grace. We should be people who love one another and who serve God and one another joyfully and with the peace of God and who are willing to set aside differences of methods in the ways that we serve the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you that we are able to have a deeper understanding of not only how important unity is to you, but how we might attain it, how we might live that out in our lives. God, I pray that you will uh, strengthen our consciences, that you will speak to our consciences and give us convictions, ways that we can serve you. And Lord, give us the courage to be different from other people around us. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't covet uh, the gifts or the, the types of service that those around us do, but that you would speak to us individually on how to serve you. Lord, we love you. We thank you that we belong to you. Help us to live lives that make this world covet what we have for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Dot org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus.